Welcome to the Sacramentalist Podcast, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We hope moving forward you'll join us for an in-depth discussion on how theology intersects with our daily lives. We're your host, I'm Father Wesley Walker. And I'm Father Miles Hickson, and it is great to have you here on this, our very first episode of the Sacramentalist Podcast. And we want to do a couple things today on our first episode. The first thing we want to do is we want to introduce us, your two hosts, to you so you know who we are, where we're coming from, and uh, we'll give you kind of a, a background for what this podcast will be. And then we want to move into actually jumping right into a first topic Uh, What is Anglo-Catholicism? And we'll tell you why we chose that as a topic and why we're going to talk about it. So let's move straight into some introductions. I'll go first. As I said, I'm Miles Hickson. I was uh, born and raised in Tennessee. I was raised in a great Christian home, Baptist. I spent time in the Pentecostal church during middle school into high school and a bit of college. I almost became a Presbyterian. And then I found the Anglican Church shortly after I got married and graduated college, and I've been falling in love with it ever since. And so now I am a priest. I'm part of the ACNA, um, and in an interesting relationship between the ACNA, the Anglican Church of North America, and the North American Lutheran Church, I actually serve as the associate pastor at a Lutheran church in Roanoke, Virginia, even though for the Anglicans out there... I'm canonically resident under the bishop of the Diocese of Christ Our Hope, which is Bishop Stephen Breedlove. So that's who I am. That's where I'm at, doing ministry as an Anglican priest in a Lutheran church. We'll have great times talking about that on here, I'm sure. And I'm married, wonderful woman. Her name's Liz, and we have a great son who's eight months old, Milo, or Miles Jr. So that pretty much sums me up. Very much like you, Father, I was raised in a Baptist church as well. Baptist and non-denominational, we did some church hopping because you know how uh, how Baptist churches like to split and argue a lot. Um, so we had jumped around, and uh, when I was in college, uh, my wife and I both uh, started just exploring traditional Christianity a little bit more, and we looked really closely at Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy alternatives, which I'm sure we'll have conversations about moving forward. <laughs> but uh, after reading Athanasius's On the Incarnation, I realized that there really was quite a difference between the Catholic faith as historically passed down uh, and, and what I was getting in a lot of Baptist and non-denominational circles. Part of that was being at Liberty University as well, which is sort of ground zero for, for modern evangelicalism. And uh, so I actually did both my degrees at Liberty in biblical studies, my undergrad and my MDiv. Um, But somehow I came out of that as an Anglican, also in the Anglican Church of North America in Missionary Diocese of All Saints. So I'm a priest at a pretty small church called Christ Our Redeemer in Lynchburg, Virginia. Um, But I also teach Latin at a classical Christian school in Roanoke, which is actually one of the ways that we connected, uh, Father Miles, is that a lot of the students and faculty and administrators at the school I teach attend uh, St. John Lutheran. So it's really cool to kind of have all those those various points of connection. I also am currently doing my my Master of Sacred Theology up at Neshota House, which is a small Anglican seminary in Wisconsin. I just started that degree recently and got my first class uh, here in January, which was really fascinating. It was a wonderful time to be up there doing morning and evening prayer every day and the Holy Eucharist each morning. It was so fun. Uh, so I'm doing that, and uh, and like you, I'm also a husband and a father, married uh, for a little over five years now. and. Our son Jude is 11 months, about to be a year old, March 2nd, so we are quite excited about that. In fact, your invitation is in the mail to the party, so. Well, all right, let's spend just a moment then talking about the purpose of this podcast. What are we going to do? What do we hope all the episodes that we are going to produce and that you all out there are going to listen to? Well, we could probably boil it down to a couple things. First, we really just see that this podcast is going to bring theological engagement with with just a lot of different facets of life. Uh, we want to talk about culture. We want to talk about movies. We want to talk about books. And we want to talk about theology. We want to talk about the full gamut of life, but always through the lenses 
and of classical Christianity, and in our case, that's going to necessarily be Anglican classical Christianity. So that's what we're going to do. Bring the sacramentalist worldview to bear on modern culture and issues. And so we don't envision this podcast to be an introduction to Anglicanism. If you're out there, you're interested in what this Anglican church is, you're going to glean a lot from this podcast, but you might want to go grab an intro to Anglicanism book or another podcast out there. That's not really our goal, even though ironically our first episode is something of a of a introduction to Anglicanism. You'll see. Uh, and then one thing that we do want to keep in mind is we don't want to be super polemic. Our goal here is not to bash other Christians, other groups, but to give a positive case for the classical Christian tradition. So yes, at times we're going to say we disagree with so-and-so, or we disagree with this for these reasons. But we're not here to be uh, negative Nancys all the time, right? Right, We are here to say that the classical Christian tradition has a great message for us today, and it is the gospel, and it is what saves us from our sins. And it comes to bear on every part of our life. So that's the podcast. It's going to be wide in many ways, but then it's always going to come back to how do we see things through this classical Christian lens. So in some ways, it's a very narrow scope. And and I think one of the strengths, too, is that, and we've been talking about this for a while now, one of the frustrations with an Anglo-Catholic approach to the faith has been that we haven't corporately done a great job of engaging the larger culture. Some of that, I think, is is the way that the larger culture has moved, but other uh, some of that is self-inflicted in the sense that we kind of like our insular echo chambers, and so to kind of venture out and to start engaging those with whom we might disagree, uh, but looking for what's true, good, and beautiful in those things um, that we can contextualize within an Anglo-Catholic approach, I think, is, is an important practice that has frankly been lacking too much in, in Anglo-Catholic circles uh, the past 30, 40 years. So. Yeah, right. so now coming to the tricky portion of the show where we try and define for you, the listener, what is Anglicanism, specifically Anglo-Catholicism. And to really understand what Anglo-Catholicism is, we have to talk about the history of the Church of England, the Anglican Church, and what that means. Now, Father, when do you hear most people, when you tell them you're Anglican, when do they say that the Anglican Church started? Yeah, most people say, oh, that was in the 1500s when King Henry got a divorce, right? Yes, exactly. And that is the wrong answer. So if you're ever on Jeopardy, we just saved you from that. Even though that's probably the answer on Jeopardy. Uh, Yeah, you're probably right. Yes, the Romanists have gotten all over the place, uh, their influence. Uh, Sorry, we're not trying to be polemical. Anyway, so the common misconception is that Anglicanism began in, during the Reformation with Henry VIII wanting a divorce. You know, he, he, he wanted a male heir, and so he wanted to just divorce uh, Catherine of Aragon and, and move on so that he could get his male heir. But what if I told you that there was a church in England long before King Henry VIII? Keep talking. I'm listening. Yeah, that's right. It's an interesting proposition. In fact, we don't exactly know when Christianity first arrived in England. The, the, the classical myth has been Joseph of Arimathea brought it as a missionary to the English Isles. Uh, historically a dubious claim, but I think it highlights the fact that Christianity's been in England for a very long time. In fact, in the 300s or so, there were English bishops who showed up to the synod at Whitby, um, and there were so, there were some other movements going on with where the British were uh, engaging with other Christians. The sad part is they were so geographically removed that it's hard to keep track of where they were in relation to what was happening to to Christianity in in the European continent. But it was there. And then, of course, you have the great Augustine of Canterbury, who was sent by the Pope uh, to England. And when he arrived in England, thinking he was going to find a bunch of pagans he found that there was a fairly robust but marginalized church there. Uh, it had been marginalized by some of the barbarians that had invaded England. So Augustine of Canterbury did a great job of, of uniting uh, the English church with the rest of the European church, the Western church. Um, and, and I think we can say, much contrary to the Roman Catholic position, that the English Christians at that time really voluntarily assented to the papal authority 
uh, but not because of the same claims that modern Roman Catholics would make about the papacy. Is that, is that a fair characterization, Father? Yeah, we have to remember that uh, in the middle, this isn't quite the Middle Ages yet, but during this time, uh, politics is a very dubious thing. And so the more allies you have, the better. And the Pope was becoming a very strong political ally. And so to be under such a strong political ally was a very needed thing in this dubious time. And so a lot drove the decision of the English church to say yes to the Pope of Rome. But then this, if we can say yes, well, can't we say no? Exactly, exactly. And, and you see, there were, there were things going on in the English church, things that had developed within geographic isolation, that then once they came into contact with the larger church, they had to really hammer out some of the things like when we celebrate Easter and, um, and the nature of how churches are constructed and, and those sort of things, which are really important issues. Um, and so it was nice for the English church to be able to place itself under Rome and the West, the rest of the Western church, um, so that it could become kind of uniform with where Christianity had, had gone, um, sort of in their absence, uh, or in their geographical removal from the rest of the church. So, so there was a church in England that was robust prior to the Reformation, and it existed prior to the papacy, uh, planting its authority in Rome, and it, and it really only voluntarily affiliated itself with Rome. Uh, but then we get to the Reformation, where things get a little bit hairy. Obviously, our Protestant brothers and sisters uh, think very highly of people like Martin Luther and John Calvin and uh, some of the other reformers, and there are certainly good things in, in those groups, but England itself was a, a, a monarchical country, very dedicated to the Roman Catholic Church. So, Father, what happened that, that caused them to maybe want to start to, to divide from the Roman Catholic Church? Yeah, well, it, we don't have to hide history. And the fact is, is that King Henry, he did want a divorce from his wife because she couldn't produce a male heir. An annulment. And an, oh, that's true. Let me which see. Which is yes, slightly different. Is you are right. You're correct. He wanted an annulment, which is, for those who don't know, in Roman Catholic theology, and Catholic theology more general, too, an annulment is that the marriage never happened. But there are certain requirements for an annulment because divorce and remarriage isn't allowed. So we'll get into that one day. He wanted an annulment. The Pope refused to grant it. Why did he want the annulment? So he could remarry and have a kid, right? Not quite. Oh, Not okay. Quite. I'm learning things. <laughs> Catherine of Aragon, who he was married to, who couldn't produce a, a male heir, uh, was actually his dead brother's wife initially. So she had been married to Henry's brother, and Henry's brother died when he was rather young. So the grounds that Henry brought for the annulment was that the Bible specifically forbids marrying your brother's wife. Leviticus. And you know what the consequence in Leviticus is for marrying your brother's wife? Childlessness. And so at first, Henry was given a papal dispensation. They said, oh, it's okay, that verse doesn't apply to this situation. But then one of their children died in the womb, and then another, and then another, and then another. And it kept happening. I think it happened six to eight times, something like that. And so at a certain point, if you were in Henry's shoes, you'd probably start thinking, that verse about childlessness seems to be applying in my situation. And so you do have some interesting biblical grounds of, you know, if the, if the Roman church felt that a dispensation was required to do the marriage in the first place, then it seems like that verse is applying to the situation. And so do they really have the authority to temporarily suspend scriptural commands. So that was the grounds that Henry brought for the annulment. And it had been done a number of times to other monarchs in Europe. So the precedent was on his side. The reason that the Pope didn't want to do it is that uh, Catherine's nephew, who was the Holy Roman Emperor, which was neither holy or Roman or an empire, had recently ransacked Rome and was basically holding the Pope 
a political hostage. So you mentioned politics earlier. Uh, here's a place where politics seem to impede the church's function uh, as the church and its its willing its ability to fairly uh, mediate this situation that Henry and Catherine were going through. So anyway, so that was one of the issues that really kind of brought the Reformation to a head in England. But there are a number of other things too. I mean the. The, the, the Pope had been acting like a ruler of a foreign country. He had an army. He had papal states. He was collecting taxes from people in, in England. Um, and the English people historically have been a very nationalistic and prideful people, not in a bad way, but just they have a strong sense of who they are. And so being told what to do by the Pope... Uh, on top of all the abuses with indulgences and monasteries that were occurring at the time, were just too much for uh, Henry and for the rest of the the country. And so I think that's where the wedge really began to come in between England and, and Rome. Right. And I, But I don't think we have to sugarcoat the history. Um, there were those bishops in England who were getting caught up in this movement of the Reformation in some way or another. And so they latch on to this political divide between Henry and the Pope, and they say, go for it. They take advantage of a political situation that they might bring theological reform to the Church of England. Which we see then in in Henry's son, Edward's reign, where... The, the Reformed Party really had a hold because when Edward came to the throne, he was a young boy. And, and so the, the Reformed bishops who Henry had appointed because he, he'd rather have gone that direction than back to Roman Catholicism, uh, really steered the church in a Reformed way. You know, they banned vestments. They ban, banned saying the Mass. Um, they banned altars. They, uh, they really revised the liturgy that had been used under Henry. And so there was a lot of, of tumultuous change going on there. Yeah, that's right. So what you end up having then in the English Reformation, and I'm sure we'll probably deal with this one day more in detail on the Reformation, particularly the English Reformation, is a very conservative Reformation mostly focused on theological abuses that were going on at the time, but not a reformation of what does it mean to be the church. And so where we see this in the English Reformation is they never throw out the historic episcopacy. The bishops and the threefold office remain, remain, remain all the way through. And as you read documents of the English Reformation. For those of you out there without, uh, or, or who have a prayer book, then you, um, you can find in the ordinal to the prayer book a, a, this amazing justification of what does it mean to be Anglican. And it's that we go back to the early church, the church fathers, and we keep doing what we've always been doing. That was the English mindset of the Reformation. And I, I think it's fair to say that is a different mindset than the Continental Reformation. It's a different mindset because the Continental Reformation either, either was forced to or chose to really refashion and reform the very nature of the church. So those are great conversations for future days. So what does that mean for us today? Well, coming out of the Reformation then, you kind of have some interesting divisions within Anglicanism. You know, you have, uh, moving forward, you have a, a, a pretty solidly reformed camp, people who want to stick to the 39 articles and Thomas Cranmer's writings and, uh, the you know, the, the prayer book and, and all that. And, and that still exists today um, within, within many Anglican circles. Um, and then you also had an, an evangelical camp as you move forward in history. I mean, you have the John Wesleys of the world who, were, who was an Anglican priest till the day he died. Most people assume he was Methodist. He was Anglican his whole life. Um, but then in the 1800s, you have a really interesting movement as the church uh, began to uh, accommodate a more secularizing culture. 
uh, a group of, of professors at, at Oxford decided to stand up to the corrosive influence of, of modernity uh, inside the church. And that was what we call now the Oxford movement, also known as the Tractarians. And it was really in that movement that Anglo-Catholicism found its identity. Um, you could point to other figures within the Church of England prior to them who, who maybe forbear their, their mission. Um, the, the Caroline Divines would be an example of that. And the Anglican liturgy itself, I think, has, has a good amount of, of material there. But the Oxford movement, headed by people like John Keeble and John Henry Newman and E.B. Pusey, was really intent on restoring that sense of being a historic church uh, to the Church of England, being Anglican. Um, they advocated something called the branch theory, which said that there are three really apostolic forms of the church, Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, and Anglicanism. And so we're all divided um, when it comes to communion, but there is a sense in which we are united in our heritage that can be traced all the way back through the historic episcopate to the 12 disciples and, and ultimately to Christ and the church that he founded. Um, so you have a very interesting movement there, and of course, Anglo-Catholicism gets a lot of flack from the more Reformed uh, brothers and sisters as being revisionist. Um, we'll talk more about that attack perhaps at a different at a different date. But the Anglo-Catholic camp in the Oxford movement really, uh, really is where we kind of come from, and and then it was picked up in the 1900s by people like uh, E.L. Maskell and uh, and Thornton. Um, and in Ferrer and a couple other uh, important figures. And so, uh, Father Miles, how would you, if somebody on the street just stopped you and said, I heard you use the word Anglo-Catholic, what does that mean as a term? If you had just briefly had to explain that to someone on the street, how would you do that? I would explain that by Catholic, I don't mean Roman Catholic. And so we would very much um, affirm that and want the world to know that the Roman Church does not have a monopoly on Catholicity. So what's Catholicity? Catholicity being, uh, if we go back to this definition by St. Vincent of Lorenz, is that Catholic faith is that which has been believed everywhere in all times by all. And so it is the universal faiths coming down to us from history and across the spectrum of different traditions. And so for us, that's what it means to be Catholic. It's codified in the creeds of the church and in the ancient tradition of the church. The church fathers hold a high place in our theology uh, because this is before the church was divided. Once the church divides in 1054 between East and West, you really get into this odd situation of saying, well, how can I believe it? When the other side doesn't, um, of course, we still believe things that the other, you know, that the Easterners don't or something. But that that kind of becomes a harder question. So, we're Catholic Christians, Catholic in the sense that we have received what the Church Fathers gave to us, which they received from the apostles, which the apostles received from Jesus. But we are Anglo-Catholic. We are Catholic through a certain strand of spiritual tradition, liturgical tradition, and um, theological tradition that took root, formed, developed in England. Um, and part of that tradition is this great event called the Reformation. And so that somehow plays itself out in our tradition. We are a Reformed Catholic faith, an English Catholic faith, however you want to put it. So someone on the street says, all right, that just complete, went completely over my head. Can you give me some nuts and bolts, Father? What does it mean if you're, that you're Anglo-Catholic? All right, fine. I'll give you the nuts and bolts. There's an identity answer, which I just gave to you. We are Catholic. But the nuts and bolts would mean we are a liturgical tradition. If you show up on a Sunday morning, we're going to do the liturgy. It's probably going to look older than even the new Catholic liturgy that's been going on for six, since the 70s. So we do the liturgy. We do the Mass. Eucharist is very central. We believe in all seven sacraments. We believe in apostolic succession. We believe um, in the graces of, of all the sacraments and of the priesthood and of, of all of these various things that many people just think well, that's what Roman Catholics believe. No, no, no. That's what Catholics believe. Roman Catholics will then emphasize these hypermarian dogmas. They'll emphasize uh, the infallibility of the Pope and his claim to universal jurisdiction over all Christians. So we are Catholics without the Pope. 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's a fair I think that's a fair description of what Anglo Catholicism is. I think sadly in the 1900s you have um, you have an infiltration in into Anglo Catholicism of of more progressive theological tendencies and the latitudinarian movement which was you know the latitudinarian movement was all about carving out space for as many different kinds of people as possible um and and certainly you know like most movements there's something to be commended about latitudinarianism but uh, anglo-catholicism specifically really started as a as a protest to kind of modern ways of thinking modern ways of 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 wanting to be inclusive at the expense of orthodoxy and and all of those things and so uh, and the movement was co-opted a bit there in the 1900s still is being co-opted today in fact in in church of england to be anglo-catholic typically means to be rather progressive and liberal in, in the way one thinks whereas historically anglo-catholicism was founded as a reaction to modernity um, and so when we look at uh, what's going on in our culture and this kind of leads us into our our third topic of conversation, uh, Father Miles. I think our second topic. I mean, uh, is that that really Anglo Catholicism is a is a harbor from what I see as as a culturally um, devastating movement that's going on now. I mean, I think Rod Dreher's book, The Benedict Option, really uh, sets the stage for how, as, as Orthodox Christians, we should understand what's happening in the United States. And, you know, as the culture becomes more secular, it's it's either going to turn its back on Christianity completely, or it's going to warp Christianity to form its own purposes. And we've seen that in a number of denominations as uh, there have been splits over progressive and conservative. And so I think that, uh, you know, as we're answering the question, what is Anglo-Catholicism, we can't forget that it's it's founded, to, or not founded, but it was it was developed in a way that that was meant to oppose those kind of social movements. In a way, uh, people like E.B. Pusey and John Henry Newman and John Keeble were prophetic because they really saw where things were moving. Um, and that mantle was picked up. Uh, Jake Meador at, at Mere Orthodoxy has a great article tracing this kind of opposition to modernity through the 1900s and people like G.K. Chesterton and T.S. Eliot and C.S. Lewis and and those kind of guys. But but the, the Anglo-Catholic movement, that's what it was intended to do. And so, uh, you know, we, we need to kind of recover that vision, I think, of carving out a separate space from the dominant culture. I think that's part of what Anglo-Catholicism is about. And I think that's um, what's led to this podcast. Yes. Is the idea is that we have something to, not we, you and I, but we as in this Anglo-Catholic tradition to be able to offer the wider world in terms of a, of a critique but also as an affirmation of what's going on out there. And so, I mean, we don't want to sound like we're right. We're this lone ship over here in the corner and everyone else is sinking and we're, we're the one lifeboat. It's not it. There's a lot of good, beautiful, and true things in all of Christendom, in every corner of it. But there is something about Anglo-Catholicism that has preserved the the antiquity and the the traditional approach to the Christian life, to the Christian mind, and to Christian worship, that that is becoming more and more and more difficult to find as the years go on. And so in, in, in a lot of ways, you referenced Dreyer and the Benedict Option. When I read that book, I think of kind of Anglo-Catholicism as these Benedict Option communities, hopefully once Rome crashes for a second time, that is our culture, uh, that we can. this will be a community that helps us rise from the ashes. So if that's, that sounds doomsday-ish, I actually see it as a great, wonderful hope that God is preserving um, the truth of, of the past 2,000 years for us. Now, odds are, if you're listening to this first episode, you're probably Anglican, maybe even Anglo-Catholic. So you may be familiar with the that terminology. Family. Yeah. yeah, that's right. <laughs> or you're our families. Even then, I'm not sure. But anyways, um, I think, you know, a lot of people who are listening to these early episodes, they may be familiar with the terminology Anglican, Anglo-Catholic, Reformed Anglicans. I mean, that, that, that jargon is stuff we interact with frequently. But if you're not someone who's familiar with those terms, Anglo-Catholicism may be a totally foreign concept to you. You maybe have never even heard of it before, are kind of 
wondering, maybe still confused about exactly what it is. And I think it begs the question why that's not a term that's used in modern Christianity frequently. Why it takes some real research and reading to, to hear about Anglo-Catholicism. And so I think kind of there are a couple causes, and, and maybe we can bounce some ideas off each other as to why Anglo-Catholicism, which was once a great and formative movement that really brought a sense, and I use this word carefully, a sense of revival to the Church of England, um, specifically in, in working class and, and lower class neighborhoods, um, why it's been relegated to a kind of irrelevance in, in the modern Christian landscape. And, and I think, and we alluded to this earlier, I mean, I think some of it is the cultural trajectory, uh, but I think other parts of it might be self-inflicted. Um, so for me, kind of looking at the, at the culture, you know, Anglo-Catholicism in its most orthodox form is, is fairly unchanging, or, or at least it's not as, it's not as willing to change. It, it does change at times, but it's not as willing to change. So it doesn't go along with the, the times. And so as the times become more secular and, you know, we get caught up in, in things like evangelicalism and megachurch worship, of course, to most Christians, Anglo-Catholicism will seem stuffy and boring and uh, maybe even stifling of the spirit-type talk, which I think is false, but we'll talk more about that later. Um, but what what degree do you see uh, external influences as being the cause of irrelevancy versus a kind of internal, uh, you know, maybe people like to section themselves off in, in these style, Benedict's option style communities, or uh, they become overly polemical. One of the things we're wanting to do is avoid that. Um, but to what degree is, is Anglo-Catholicism's irrelevancy external right. versus internal? So one of the things that I think happened in Anglo-Catholicism and this isn't an original idea to me, but someone that you and I both know, Father Glenn Spencer, he has he has said that it, the Anglo-Catholic movement won the day in terms of its beauty and aesthetics. It forever brought Catholic notions of liturgy of the sacrament to Anglicanism once and for all. If you go to an Anglican church today, you will celebrate Holy Communion on Sundays, right? That was not always the case. So there's the Catholic practice. You'll see vestments that were not always the case. Um, but Anglo-Catholic theology and I truly identity and practice in terms of theology never really took root. And so this is what allowed progressive theology to co-op Anglo-Catholicism. It allowed someone to have the outward form without the inward kind of uh, meaning the inward thought. One of the things that that makes me think of, I, I was listening to an interview with a progressive, um, progressive author who I believe went to your alma mater. Um, you went to Bryan College, right? Yeah, so I'm Other guessing miles. this is Rachel Teld Evans. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but so she was on a podcast where she was uh, she was discussing being <clears throat> accused of of heterodoxy from conservative Christians, and she said, "Well, at my church, because she's Episcopalian." Uh, we say the Nicene Creed every Sunday. So basically, how could she be unorthodox when they're willing to say the creed every Which, Sunday? Which, and I'm assuming the issue is homosexuality. Right, that was the, yeah, that was the yeah, main topic. So she would embrace that, but, right, but right. she says the creed. But she says the creed. Well, they use purple during Lent, you know, so how unorthodox can they be? It's kind of the, we wear slippers, you know, our bishops wear slippers, so how unorthodox can oh we be? Oh my gosh, yeah. So, okay. so what I think's happened then is you then have this reaction, right? The world, to use Bonhoeffer's term, comes of age. In, in, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. And this leads to the greatest uh, revision of Roman Catholicism the world's ever seen, which is Vatican II. And so you see this movement where for, for, one, for the first time, it seems in the history of Christianity, people are wanting something that isn't highly liturgical. They're wanting something that's comfortable and cool and let's talk and hang out and do folk mass and clown mass and Beyonce mass. Beyonce mass now. Yeah, that's that's a thing. Look that up. That was in California, and then we all cried. And so this is, I think that that's what happened. Is okay. So I've I've said two things, and I didn't clarify. The first was that the progressive co-opted it, and so what ends up happening is you can have Anglo-Catholic form, which is a lot of the Episcopal Church, Church of England, a lot of the. I mean, 
you walk into their services and they are way more beautiful than anything you, I mean, this is the glory of worship. They don't believe anything. I know a bishop in the Episcopal Church said, I can sing the Nicene Creed, but I can't say it. It's a beautiful song, but I don't believe a word of it. Like, really? That's not Catholic Christianity. And so you have a response to that. And people say, well, if if all that wonderful beauty and pomp and circumstance produces people who don't even believe in the creed, I'll just go sit around a campfire and sing Kumbaya with Jesus people in the 70s. And so that's what ends up happening. And so you, you have this combination of people reacting against what high Anglo-Catholicism without substance produces. They're not seeing the revival of the 1800s. They're seeing the dead religion, so to speak, of the, of the 50s. And then the world comes of age. People are kind of pushing back and forth. They're not wanting this high stuffy stuff. Rome's changed. And, the, and then, you, so you, then you have conservative, Bible-believing Anglo-Catholics who still have substance, in their faith, and they're not going to change and update their liturgy at the whims of culture, and so they get relegated into kind of obscurity of Christianity, and then the world just keeps going on without them, right? And so now, every Anglo-Catholic conservative kind of, you know, we're in the ACNA, but let's talk about people in the continuum, the APA, um, the ACC, the ACA, these different small groups that they don't ordain women at all. Oh man, how backwards and you know barbarian can you be? And so as culture keeps going, they're becoming less and less of a relevant force. But And so what do they do? I think they have taken on the Benedict Option before the Benedict Option was ever mentioned, and that is they kind of hunker down, focus on themselves. You mentioned earlier echo chambers, and t- they talk among themselves, and the people of the world are... You know, the conservatives are talking about um, either Al Mohler or John Piper or Stephen Furtick or Bethel or, you know, you pick your camp. And the liberals are talking about Pope Francis. No, I'm kidding. And they're talking about um, whoever, you know, whatever other Christian is out there. And so we're kind of in this excluded middle. I think that's I think that's really a good observation. I, I think, too. Um, it's fascinating to kind of trace the history of the continuum itself because it's had some problems as far as, you know, when they the in the 70s, they got together, a bunch of Anglo-Catholics, and they realized that the trajectory of the Episcopal Church was unsustainable. The ordination of women, the revisions to the prayer book that came in the, ni- in the final form in the 1979 prayer book, which um, our parish uses, um, and it has some good things in it, but it's, you know, there are definitely some other It's a revision. That, yeah, yeah. It's, it is a revision. Um so you, you, you have this meeting in St. Louis, the affirmation of St. Louis comes out of it, and it's a, a really a beautiful show of unity, and, um, and, but then coming out of that, you do have a kind of fracture into these four main groups of, of continuing Anglicans, Anglo-Catholic churches with their own bishops and their own parishes and their own priests, and so there's really not much conversation that's going on between those groups. Uh, and that lasted for about 40 years. I mean, it only within the past couple years has really started to turn a corner where uh, they call them the G4 churches now. They signed a full statement of intercommunion. Um, and so there are a lot of exciting things happening in the Anglo-Catholic world. It's kind of they finally gotten their stuff together and are now, you know, they have all these Benedict Option type communities that are really robust. One of the communities that's really impacted Father Miles and I has been um, All Saints in Charlottesville. As Father Miles mentioned, uh, Father Glenn Spencer um, over there. I mean, they're really doing some wonderful things. And, and it feels to me as though the continuum has started to look outward a little bit more as of the past five years or so than it did, um, you know, maybe even 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and so I'm excited to see kind of what happens in the world of Anglo-Catholicism in the next few decades. I mean, I think it could really be exciting. Right, and I know that our own tradition, our own uh, group, the Anglican Church of North America, there are a lot of Anglo-Catholic-minded priests and laity and clergy of all sorts who are longing to see uh, this sort of identity return to Anglicanism as, as we move forward, because I think they see in it, if not... Uh, the ACNA is just going to drift into oblivion and become yet another evangelical or maybe worse denomination. 
right? So we've probably gotten off topic enough. So what's our third topic? Well, I think it raises the question, this discussion of, of what's relegated Anglo-Catholicism to a kind of irrelevancy. <laughs> but but as we're rediscovering this identity and, and people are, are starting to uh, long for a return to the traditions of the church and, and all these things are kind of happening all at once, um, what does it look like for us to have a sense of Anglo-Catholic renewal? How do we move forward from here? Um, and I know we've had some conversations about what that looks like, and so maybe we can enlighten the rest of the world and uh, oh, yes. share with Let them Let us tell you all of our wonderful ideas <laughs> as I'm sleep-deprived with a child. Yeah, so in my opinion, the thing that is most needed in the Anglo-Catholic world is literature. A lot of our—I'll say literature and media in general, so like what we're doing, a podcast— or other things like that. Most that most of the great things that are have been written by Anglo Catholics are about a hundred years old. <clears throat> Except I always have to put the plug in. Everyone tries to claim C.S. Lewis, right? I was on an Orthodox <laughs> website the other day, and what were they quoting? C.S. Lewis. Catholics quote C. Roman Catholics. Bishop Barron. Bishop uh, Barron. Roman Catholic Roman love C.S. Lewis. Lewis. Let's just set the record straight, Father West. C.S. Lewis was an Anglo-Catholic, wasn't he? Did he like the term Anglo-Catholic? No, he didn't like the term, but he, he, was, he was. He, he was, was, whether he knew it or not. He was Anglo-Catholic. I mean, all you have to do is read more than mere Christianity. Or actually, mere Christianity is pretty Anglo-Catholic. His, he, he's got theosis and... Inqu- anyway, that's a side part. The, what I'm saying is most of the Anglo-Catholic literature is old, outdated, and particular to England. And so we just need a revival of writing and convincing. And, and I'm seeing it happen with, in Anglicanism in general. The ACNA is tapping into something inside uh, the current generation for a need for historicity and um, liturgy, sacrament, these sorts of things. But what they're offering them is what comes into fullness in Anglo-Catholicism. So we need literature. We need media. We need churches that evangelize. We need. We just need to mobilize. So that's my that's my thoughts. Yeah, I think no, I think you're spot on, especially with the writing. I, I was lamenting the other day. Anglo Catholicism started with a sermon, John Keeble, uh, his National Apostasy Sermon, and then the movement really took its momentum from the tracks of the for the times, which were literature. I mean, it was it was being it was the written word being disseminated uh, across England, and um. You know, it's sort of sad that a movement that was founded with rich preaching and with rich writing uh, really hasn't had either of those things for a very long time. I mean, you'll find exceptions. Father Glenn Spencer is a great preacher. Father Wade Miller uh, over in Blacksburg is a great preacher as well. Um, So you have a lot of—you have Anglo-Catholic preaching, but it's not—it's definitely not what Anglo-Catholics are known for in today's— World. Right. So the way I see it, Anglo-Catholicism is, is lying dormant, and, and something, we pray the Spirit will jolt us, it, it's going to come back alive soon. I think the worst the world gets is just begging for what Anglo-Catholicism brought in the 1800s, again in the 1930s and 40s today. So I think that we just got to talk about it, and I think it'll—you build it and they will come. That never works. I know that <laughs> never works. But that's that's— that's where we're at. Yeah. No, I think I think you're absolutely spot on. Well, any last thoughts to add here? I have none. Good. Excellent. Well, to end the show, one of the things we wanted to do is uh, kind of step away from the theological minutiae and the intricate historiographies of English church history and uh, step back and, and maybe have a little more of a casual, brief conversation What's something that you've been into lately, Father Miles? Could be music, movies, TV show, book, anything. What have you been into? Yeah, so my wife and I, we've been watching an Amazon series, The Man in the High Castle. Uh-huh. Have you heard of this? I've heard of it. I've not watched yeah, it. So it's based on a book that was written in the 60s or 70s. Uh, I can't remember the guy who wrote the book. And the, the premise of this book it's a very short book from what I've been told, and it didn't really go into a lot of detail, is it's just a exercise in alternative history. What if the Nazis and the Japanese won 
World War II. Go. And so the book is more looking at these individuals living under a world dominated by the, uh, the Axis powers. The TV show, third season, three seasons are out. The fourth season comes out in fall, and it'll be the final season, is, is much more in-depth. There, there's this notion of, I don't really want to give it away, but I guess I will, kind of transporting between alternative universes. It's really strange. But it's been great, and it's, it's made me think in our political climate where the term Nazi or Hitler is thrown around a lot for certain political camps and for some who claim Nazi, right? The neo-Nazis, I think of the Charlottesville March a year or so ago, then to think what would it look like to live under a regime of Nazi control or of totalitarian power? So that's what I've been into recently. I have two things. The first, I'll keep very brief because I'm embarrassed to even admit it. But my wife and I have been watching the show The Masked Singer. And it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. It makes me want to get rid of a TV. But at the same time, it's really enjoyable. So the the premise of the show is that these celebrities dress up as characters like animals or monsters or something and they come out and they sing uh, and they give little clues about who they might be like where do they sing is this like at a concert it's like a stage that's kind of like an american idol type show okay so uh, they're judges and stuff and, oh, okay um and so they sing and then you know they get voted as to whether they stay or go home and the, the person who goes home has to reveal who they are so like i think a couple weeks I, it's out been out long enough that i don't think these are too spoiler too spoilerish but like antonio brown from the pittsburgh steelers their wide receiver he was the first eliminated terry bradshaw was eliminated um i think the last one was tori spelling uh was she was on there so anyway so it's just been kind of it's it's the most ridiculous thing i've ever seen but it's like a train wreck i mean i just can't stop watching it's, <laughs> it's really it's really something else so that's one thing but the other thing i've been uh, i've been reading i i I have to make a confession to you, Father. Um, I've never read The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Um, you went to school, didn't you? I, okay. I Well, I was homeschooled, so I don't know uh, if that counts. I, I absolve thee in the name of the Father. So, no, I can't say that. My wife and all of her family that's probably listening to this is homeschooled. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad they're saved. Anyways, <laughs> anyways so um, instead of reading the book that I probably should read, I, I picked up uh, Revisiting Babylon and Other Short Stories by F. Scott Fitzgerald. I love short stories, uh, probably because I don't have to commit too much time to sure. them. So I've only read three. The first one was about a, a southern girl who goes up north in the with a love interest and ends up hating it there and wants to move back to the south, um, even though she was sort of discontent in, in the south. It was very interesting. Um, the second one was just a, a, a chaotic tale of, uh, of America set right after World War One, so all the troops are coming back and people are partying. It's the Roaring Twenties. You know, I mean, it's just everyone is excited and, um, and, and there's so much excess and luxury. And so just it's kind of a tale of the dark side of, of that cultural um, phenomenon. Uh, and then the most recent one that I read was, was by far the most ridiculous, and it's about George Washington's descendants who discover a, a mountain of diamonds in Montana. And so they move there and they build this crazy mansion and they bring a bunch of slaves and they don't they never tell them that uh, slavery is legalized and uh, and it's like the only 5 square miles in the United States that aren't surveyed cuz they keep paying off people and doing all these crazy diversions and so it's just this wild place and so the the son of this family brings a school friend to visit um, the school friend falls in love with his sister and uh, is really loving living this this good life in in Montana, in the middle of nowhere in Montana with these slaves and things, and then realizes that the way they've kept their house hidden so long has been they kill all the visitors who come up. So he's gonna die oh, gosh, <laughs> uh, because he goes and visits, but then he's saved at the last minute by some uh, airplanes that come and bomb the the premises, and it's a, it's a wild short story. I mean, it's just crazy but it's been really interesting it's been a really interesting uh read so i'm excited to read the rest of it but that's what i've been that's, that's what, what i've you've been, been into lately, lately. That's yeah great. 
Well, uh, we appreciate you all uh, for listening, for downloading. We would encourage you uh, to uh, send us any feedback or topic suggestions, things you'd like to hear us talk about. Uh, you can email us at uh, sacramentalistspodcast at gmail.com. You can also like us on Facebook. Uh, I think eventually we should probably put together a closed group where we can have discussions and kind of continue what it is that we're talking about on the show on the Facebook group. Um, so we'll, we'll get on that eventually, but go ahead and for now you can just like us on, on our Facebook page. Um, if you like what we're trying to do, feel free to go to our, our anchor.fm page under the Sacramentalists. Uh, you can donate there. Um, so if you if you want us to produce more shows where we're kind of talking about uh, all these things, it, it would be a lot easier if we had a, an incentive to do that. Um, so you can donate there. Um, and, and also, whatever podcast feed you listen to, whether it's iTunes or uh, Google Play or, or whatever, feel please uh, subscribe. Um, and then if, if you would, uh, a rating and a review would be extra helpful as far as helping other people find out about us. And, and word of mouth, share us to, to your friends, your nerdy Anglican friends who you think would enjoy what it is that we're trying to do, or those people who uh, who you think maybe need to hear uh, what it is that, that Anglicanism is all about and, and what it is that we're trying to do. Anything, any last words, Father? No, you know, I think one thing we, we failed to mention, but we'll say it right here at the end, our podcast is not for just Anglicans, yes. for an insular conversation type idea. We want that, we hope that this can benefit all Christians or people even outside of the church, just looking in and saying, what on earth are they still doing around? But if you are searching, if you are looking, maybe wavering between different Christian denominations, traditions, wondering where do I... F- we, would, uh, we would encourage you, give Anglicanism, Anglo-Catholicism a try. You might just find the ancient church. That's right. That's a, good, that's a pretty good sales pitch. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. My dad's a salesman. I've, I've had it my whole life. So there you go. Very good. Very we good. We better end on that. Well, one of the things that's important for us is that uh, as priests to, to end each show with a blessing. So, Father Miles, would you give a blessing to our listeners? I will. May the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen. Amen.